Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. It's hard to overstate the effect Negro League baseball had on South Florida and America. Negro Leagues introduced baseball to Japan, and now the highest paid player in the game is Japanese. The league played in Latin America and accepted stars from Latin America at a time when people of color weren't allowed to play in the U.S. And now, more than 70% of the players on the Miami Marlins alone are foreign-born. The Negro League invented wearing helmets, numbers on uniforms, night baseball. Teams traveled with their own stadium lights. But its greatest innovation? The Negro Leagues helped integrate America. The talent on the field forced the all-white Major League Baseball to pay attention. And for the first time, people of color and whites sat side-by-side side in the stands. Eventually, anyway. You find all of that out in a new documentary by WLRN-TV, Never Drop the Ball. The filmmakers Michael Anderson and Fabian Cardenas make the case with rich interviews and historical video footage like you've never seen. They'll screen their film at the Lyric Theater Thursday night and at Florida Atlantic University on January 24th. It airs on WLRN-TV February 2nd. We have them both in studio today. Mike, Fabian, let's talk a little baseball. All righty. So, I mean, all those little bits really... there, There are pieces of this documentary, things that I've never seen, and stories that I've never heard. And I think as a filmmaker, that's what you, that's the kind of effect you want, right? Absolutely, yes, yes. That was the goal that we were uh, going for. Uh, I think um, Negro League baseball and history of the Negro Leagues has been told in different ways. Uh, but we really wanted to focus on the South Florida and local aspect of the impact of the Negro Leagues and barnstorming and black baseball in South Florida. That was really key for us. Mike, uh, Michael, that's, that's interesting you say that because that's the part that was interesting to me is because we've had so many stories told different ways about Negro Leagues. We've had stories of Jackie Robinson told many different ways, but you guys really found that South Florida angle, which, is, which is, makes it special, I think. I think to go with uh, curiosity. As a filmmaker, you have to be curious about uh, the subject that you're choosing to introduce to audiences. So I think Mike and I, we, we had that curiosity and to know, you know, what is this, what is about? What is the Negro League is about, you know? Um, and I think that that is, uh, and the film shows that curiosity that we have. So that started with, with a, Fabian, you were saying that started with a natural curiosity that he, that you had. So in what sense, did, was baseball something that you were always interested in? Were you interested in the connection to South Florida? Funny enough, I, I don't understand baseball. <laughs> um, I'm not a baseball uh, aficionado. You know, I grew up with soccer. But as a filmmaker, you never can be close to a, a topic or your favorite topic. I think as a filmmaker, you want to tell stories the best way possible, piece it together the best way possible. And these are historical films, right? So history, sometimes people love it, so people don't love it that much. But we, our jobs, I think Michael and I, is to piece it together and say, look, this is history learn it and keep looking into more research if you like the topic hopefully we put that seed for you to keep uh, learning more and i think the the story of the negro leagues is is that type of film well that that's interesting you say that because anytime you make a baseball movie especially at a time when before these rule changes right which we'll talk about uh really brought back some interest into the game it was kind of waiting so if you it could be a very niche film if you just focus on the nuts and bolts of baseball just if you get too nerdy into the sport itself 
So talk to me about that, Michael, how you guys expanded that into telling a more humanistic story, a story of people. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because for us, it was about the human story. Mm. Uh, it was about the, um, the men and women who uh, played in this game uh, and, and, and made it uh, the great game that it was uh, when it came to Negro League Baseball mm. and knowing that history of, of what these individuals went through. Uh, that was very important for us. And it wasn't about uh, what I call the, uh, what do you call it? Uh, balls and strikes right, right. Uh, of baseball. Um, me personally, I really uh, love um, uh, sports and history. And so bringing those two together for me uh, is, is really good, you know? And I think that there's a lot of history uh, right around us that we just don't know. You know, and and we're unfamiliar with or we're walking the hallways or we're driving right next to these parks that have had these, um, you know, iconic moments in history. And we have no idea about them. And so it was just really important. I felt to uh, really focus on those stories. And it just goes into WLRN as a whole. Uh, it's really what we're looking to do as a storyteller station. You know, we really find these stories that have that uh, deep rooted connection with South Florida, but not only South Florida, uh, nationally and internationally. And I felt like this story did all of that. Yeah, I felt that, too. I felt like I learned things about my own community. I mean, and I'm talking blocks from where we're recording today Correct. Uh, to internationally. Right. Um and, and, you know, the, the part that struck me, which, you know, I, I just mentioned at the at the outset, was the fact that there are so many firsts that uh, the Negro Leagues did that Major League Baseball, white baseball, took credit for, right? Correct. Uh, like, we always right. have this idea of, um, you know, if, if you're a real baseball nerd, uh, uh, Babe Ruth and a lot of Yankees took the sport to Japan, you know, uh, in the <laughs> 40s, right? In the uh, 30s. In the 30s, I'm sorry. But the truth is, the Negro Leagues had been there seven years earlier with what team was it? The The Philadelphia Royal Giants. The Philadelphia Royal Giants. That's correct. And Mm -hmm. you guys, talk to me about unearthing some of that that information. Yeah. uh, Well, I'll just say for for us, it's like historical research, right? And so, you know, even in this project, uh, it wasn't, I would say, our story to tell. Mm -hmm. We really reached out to... Uh, some great individuals that agreed to be a part of uh, the project. Um, and um, I mean, we can name drop all of those different names, but uh, just doing the research, we found a lot of this history. Uh, and then we found um, the documentation. Then we found the images uh, about it. We found a, story, a lot of side stories that we don't even uh, talk about in a sense in this documentary, but they're out there. The history uh, behind um uh, the the Philadelphia Royal Giants being known as the uh, the gentle black giant the uh, yeah the, being the gentle giants uh-huh. you know in a sense and mainly that was because of their professionalism when playing in Japan uh, as opposed to Babe Ruth and the All Stars played a different style game which was more uh, showing up the Japanese uh, uh, teams. And schooling so, them. Yeah, schooling <laughs> them, almost embarrassing them yeah. in a sense. And even though the Negro League team was far superior over the Japanese team, they still treated them with respect. And they, they gained the name of being the Gentle Giants. So very interesting story there. And it's interesting that one of the most 
now one of the most famous Japanese teams is, and I have a hat here because when I went to Japan, the Yomiuri Giants, mm. right? The Giants, right? <laughs> so I'm kicking my black cap with the orange logo, yes. which is the color <laughs> of the nice. Giants. I'm Very aware nice. for the rest of the interview. Yes, yes. Yeah. And it's not it's not a Yankees cap, and and it makes sense that there is there was a, this historical connection to. Um, kind of a beloved, not just a beloved sport in Japan, but this beloved team that kind of started it all. Yes. And, and I love that you said the, the team in Japan, and it's called Giants. Mm -hmm. So I want to touch upon that name, Giants, right. because everything Gi was called Giants at the time. Right. And if you ask me why they were called Giants, because there was no social media at the time. The only newspapers and whatever was happening. So if your team was called Giants, could have been, you know, the New York Giants come into town. As long as you put in Giants, you have guarantee a crowd. So oh, the so Giants, funny. it was a marketing tool for all these teams to do this, this well, type of thing. Well, it worked for me. I, I, I went to Japan. I got the hat. You know, I bought the T-shirt, <laughs> as the saying goes. Um, talk to me about some of those other firsts, because I think that, that that's really interesting, too. To me, the one that, that struck was I think of night baseball um, as being one of the biggest innovations in the sport. But really, it started with the Negro League teams because they were a travel team. We call it barnstorming, that, that phrase barnstorming. Yeah, uh, it's basically traveling from town to town to town, taking baseball to cities that didn't have baseball. So, like, not necessarily going to New York where you had three teams, but going to, small yeah, small towns in between. Places like Miami, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, talk to me about that, that, yeah. that idea of innovation and taking baseball Helping really helping spread baseball rather than just feeding the populations where there are already teams. I think I think with barnstorming in particular, uh, it's actually the way I feel. It's a business model, mm -hmm. right? And so you have these black teams that were uh, in the Jim Crow uh, era of segregation and 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 all that was going on at the time, and they were finding a way for themselves to create. Um, a business mm. and also to create money, you know, to make money for themselves. So going around barnstorming, packing into cars and going to towns that, that may love baseball, but they didn't have the access, let's say to even major league baseball. So you brought uh, the entertainment uh, to the town, you know, and we, we can speak more on it, but even then those games that are happening over and over and playing eventually they needed uh, lights, you know? And so I think just technology and, and, the, and the necessity of it kind of came together. You know, it was a need for it and they made it happen. And it's, and it's because, you know, the, the Negro Leagues mm -hmm. used to rent the stadium. You, you know, let's move a little forward from mm -hmm. Barn Storm. They still Barn Storm. Barn Storm was part of the, of the culture, you know, and we still do it in other sports. Um, so what happened is, with, with with moving um, uh, the Negro Leagues forward, they rent the stadiums, and obviously they were given the most terrible times. You know, Sunday, go and play on Sunday. Uh, night, okay, you wanna do night? Go ahead, do night. You know what I'm saying? So right. they had to be innovating all the time. Interesting, so you know it really saying? started with, because a lot of these owners that owned, you know, Yankee Stadium also owned a bunch of these little stadiums That's around. Correct. And they would rent them, and at one point your film says that they were making, in like $1940, $100,000 a year. Correct. Just mm -hmm. in the rental of those stadiums to mm -hmm. black teams. Correct. Right, Negro League teams. And like you said, it, they got the worst, the worst tea times, basically. Yeah, like you're right. in golf, that's you right. got the worst tea time. <laughs> so they're like, oh, if we have to play at night, what do we do? That's right. We do these lights. That's but right. I, I also think even the fact of 
of renting those stadiums, the stadiums, like you mentioned, Yankee Stadium, uh, Rupert Stadium, they're renting these different stadiums. Uh, that also delayed, I feel, the integration of baseball because why would we go into bringing blacks into baseball when we're making so much money just through renting the stadiums? Right. So all of these different owners that own these stadiums, they were still uh, uh, doing well for themselves, uh, making, a, making a profit uh, in it. So it wasn't a real push i think um yeah. to do that that's the way it, i feel you know it, yeah. it, you know it, it like mike mike says, michael says um you know it's a business if you rent in your your place and you're getting money mm-hmm. you are not going to keep up that you know right. Right. it's going to have time but on the other hand they became a powerhouse and when you become a powerhouse you have the east and west all-star games you know you are filling in stadiums fifty thousand of African-Americans or people of color there. So people start noticing that and they say, you know, maybe we do the switch, we'll make more money, right? So, and that's what just happened. And and both those things really struck me that you mentioned, Fabian, because one, uh, they had this, this East-West game, which was this, uh, you would call it like the Negro League All-Star game, right? Correct. Or, and it, the numbers eclipsed the World Series. That mm-hmm. to me was, was, mm-hmm. was amazing. And then the second part, when the when they finally do integrate, and it takes 12, 13 years after Jackie Robinson, or twelve years after Jackie Robinson, for every team to have at least one uh, one black player either in the at their majors or on yeah. in their minors. Um, when they finally fold those stadiums that they were making a hundred thousand dollars on the side, now they're making three hundred thousand correct by having an integrated sport because right instead of just playing to your one audience you're just white audience now you're opening you're creating a thing that's interesting to a, a much wider audience yes and just overall that that wider audience for major league baseball became the detriment of negro league baseball and really affected negro league baseball moving forward after that so that you know we speak about that's really uh where the decline or the start of the end well i would say the end of negro league baseball started well it's one it's like a double-edged sword right like you want it to you want it to like you want to live in a world Mm -hmm. where you don't have to have black only uh games but at the same time wouldn't it have been nice to have some black owners who had started these leagues to have had a major now a major league team like isn't that a better way to integrate rather than like taking all our players right or could or could we uh could it could have been integrated different mm-hmm. right i mean the philadelphia royal giants could have gone and come into major league and say okay we have our team you integrate to us so now we're doing true integration mm-hmm. it was more like a an explosion but you know all the negro leagues knew about this and they were willing to uh, make this uh, ending chapter. So this started way, way, way before, mm. and this was the ending, but at the beginning of the new baseball. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, that is the courage, and, and for me, uh, I admire those people because they were, you know, push it aside, don't play, but I say, no, I want to play, yeah. and I have the right to play. And they play, and they create their own thing, and they make it grow and grow and grow until... Uh, you know Jackie Robinson. So they are every single sweat from these players make um, the step that uh, Major League t- took with uh, Jackie Robinson. Yeah. 
I, I mean, Jackie Robinson, uh, when he started playing 47 um, for the Dodgers, I mean, America Industry, I mean, that was five, that was eight years before, before integration, right? So like, he was living in it. He was living in this kind of uh, uh, with like an uncharted territory, so to speak, an unmapped territory. Um, and like you said, you know, it, integration could have gone. Integration in baseball could have gone very differently, like it could have gone very differently in the rest of America, right? So there's still, like, it wasn't all ha- hunky dory. There's still white supremacy at play for how it how it was decided. That's right. That That's right. And, and I think the other thing too is integration was happening way before. So we're talking about integration in Major League Baseball, but through barnstorming and other games, there was a lot of. Uh, uh, integration that was happening in baseball. There were blacks and whites uh, playing um, all throughout this country way before uh, Jackie Robinson. So integration was going on. We're just talking about integration in Major League Baseball. But definitely, even the speaking about night baseball mm-hmm. uh, earlier, you know, with the uh, House of David. So the House of David, uh, a white team, you know, is playing uh, alongside the Kansas City Monarchs. So they're playing with a black team traveling this country, uh, playing barnstorming and playing these games. And so they're playing together. It's not that they're not, but we're talking about in Major League Baseball, and that's because of money. You know, it all came down to money. Well, there's one character in your your film who says, anytime somebody says it's not about money, it's always about money. Absolutely. You're talking about Bob Kendrick. He is great. (laughs) It's 100% um, true what he said. I'm curious uh, for you, Fabian, Mm -hmm. uh, how, like, as you kept moving and there's so much baseball in it and you were a guy with a, with a football background, right? Mm -hmm. Um, What parts of it kept you interested? Uh, I mean, I have done documentaries before and with subjects that I don't have any per se personal interest in, I, you know, we all have certain interests, but you know, for me, it's the storytelling. Just to be able to piece the story together, they be be able to learn from it. Because I think, as a filmmaker, you get enriched by uh, uh, chasing the story uh, and making sure that the voices are cohesive. The voices are, um, in this case, because it's a historical documentary, mm-hmm. they are uh, you know as true as they can be. So I think uh, Michael and I, we went and chased the best voices for the documentary. And for me, that's what it keeps me entertained all the time. Finding new things, finding new stories. There's a lot of side stories that we didn't even put in the film because we have a 60 minutes film. But, it, you know, like I think I heard Michael before the show that he said, you know, this could have been a 15 hours documentary. And it's true. Right. So many side stories, beautiful stories that were, you know, left behind in the cut. Because, you know, we, like I said, our job, and I think WLRN's job is to, um, you know, educate, entertain, and put out there the best quality film they can put. Our guests today are Michael Anderson and Fabian Cardenas. They are the filmmakers behind WLRN TV's latest documentary, Never Drop the Ball. You know, we've talked so much about the innovations that um, the knee release bought, brought into baseball, into America, and I'm curious about bringing it, bringing it to Miami. You know, bringing it to South Florida, some of the some of the the changes that it brought. There's this one line in the documentary that said, um, "Wherever you had Negro League baseball, you had thriving black economies," mm-hmm. and I think that's a description of what we we hear what Overtown was. Yes, and it was you know, uh, black teams came, Negro League teams came to South Florida because there was a community ready to accept it here, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yes, correct. Uh, there, uh, and that same statement happened all throughout the country in different areas, in Pittsburgh and Kansas City and other areas. It's the same um, story mm-hmm. in a sense. But here locally in Miami, in particular, you mentioned Overtown. And so uh, having uh, Dorsey Park and the, the close proximity to Overtown and having the fans uh, to be able to come out uh, to see these games of the Miami Giants, uh, and Miami Giants being an early barnstorming team. They were never officially in the Negro Leagues, but a lot of the players that played on the Miami Giants were superstars in the Negro Leagues. Uh, so Satchel Page and uh, uh, Buck O'Neill. Buck O'Neill, yes, And even the Buck O'Neill story really connects uh, with us as well when it comes to a Florida story because Buck O'Neill was born in Florida. Buck O'Neill uh, also went to uh, HBCU in Florida. He went to, I, I believe, um, Edwin Waters. Uh, uh, no, I'm sorry. But he went to a HBCU. Right, a historically it, black it, college. Here in, in Florida. And then he uh, traveled uh, down to the Miami Giants and played for the Miami Giants and then traveled internationally and played in Cuba uh, with the Miami Giants. So uh, just that connection was really good. But back to Overtown, you know, it was such a thriving community, uh, not just about nightclubs, but businesses mm-hmm. and and um, uh, the people that were there. And so we have images of that in the film of the thriving times of of Overtown uh, and pay homage to that because that respect should still uh, be known um, in this community. And are you gonna, And there's these beautiful colorized images too, yeah. which like really, yeah. it keeps it from feeling uh, old timey. It like, it really does, um, you don't need a sense of creativity. You don't need to have a creative mind to be, to, to be brought into it and to really place yourself in the time is really beautiful. And I think in the film with the, uh, Michael and I, we, we, we were chasing um, the image, and it was hard, a hard task to do. Um, there's not many images, and play-by-play uh, uh, play was non, um, non-existent. But uh, we, we stumbled upon these beautiful uh, colorized images that um, they, they have, and uh, we, we were able to, to talk to them, and we were able to, you know, everything. Who, 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 what organization did you go to for it that? It's the play in, Playing in Color. Playing in color, right? Yes. Yeah, and there's a big, at the end of the film, that's you right. guys have so many sources that you went to, and yes. it's, it's really amazing. Yeah, yeah, we did a lot of research. This film was, uh, you know, the easy part, I think, was to uh, have the interviews, right, Mike? Um, the, the, after that, it was just to put it together, like I said, you know, the images, the, 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 the trying to find elements that can enrich the, the film. Mm-hmm. But coming back to, to local stuff, uh, Miami Giants is, I think for us, as soon as we knew the Miami Giants was a great start because Miami Giants became the uh, Ethiopian clowns and then become the Indianapolis clowns, which is the longest uh, team in Negro Leagues to, to you know, right, start. It was, like, it was like the longest running, running. Uh, Negro yeah. League team with the that's, clowns. That's but, right. And they started here in Miami. That's correct. That's right. And they have a little bit of like a mixed, uh, mixed reviews, so to speak, right? Because... That team starts as kind of not just baseball players, but kind of Harlem Globetrotter-ish. And even before they got to that, almost minstrel show. So like we mentioned Buck O'Neill, he played on that team and he was like, I kind of hate having to do the um, like the minstrel show mm-hmm. aspect to it. But it's like you're playing sometimes to white audiences and it's like, 
Yeah, you had that's kind of what they wanted to see. So it was like it. You saw this double-edged sword. Yeah, you had to bring the slapstick comedy into baseball. Slapstick comedy is the into way, the perfect way to see that's it. Right. Yeah, and um, and the um, you know, uh, one of the owners of the Harlem Globetrotters was also connected with uh, the clowns, and so you know, uh, Sid Pollock. Uh, and so having that sort of connection, you could see how uh, the, it bled into uh, creating that style of entertainment, let's say. And, you, you know, you mentioned something there about uh, the uh, to white audiences. That's the thing, too, about uh, Negro League Baseball and barnstorming in particular. It was not just blacks in the audience. You know, the audience, uh, the turnstiles were clicking black and white. And so money was coming through uh, in Negro League Baseball altogether. And when you mentioned, too, about uh, color and the images that we mm-hmm. used, mm-hmm. Uh, it was very important uh, to me, uh, to both of us as well, when it came to bringing uh, these black and white images that we see and even think about in most documentaries or historically everything you see is black and white right. or a sepia. It's a sepia kind of look. You mm-hmm. look through old photo albums and that's the way you see things and eventually you <laughs> believe that that's the way life was, right? It looked like that. And the past that's was in black and white. The past was in black <laughs> and white, but the past was in color. Yeah, it I was, would, it, it was, was in full color. <laughs> I always say you can't give people broccoli and be like, eat it because it's good for you. You got to melt some cheese over the top, <laughs> right? right? That's, that's right. right. You got to liven it up. <laughs> and by adding that color factor, you really, you take us into the place. You yes. you allow us to see ourselves in these players, in yes. these athletes. And, and we and, and we speak about like, uh, even with blacks, you're seeing different skin tones, right? You're seeing different right. uh, ranges of skin tones when you're looking mm-hmm. uh, at an image in color. When you're looking at an image in black and white, you know, you you can't really tell maybe the difference in um, a light skin a uh, black person or a darker skin black person. So just that alone brings an element of of storytelling or even other uh, emotions that you start to develop and see in the imagery. Right, nuances, all in the details. Yes, yes, yes. And in, in talking about other elements in the in the film, uh, in businesses, we were, uh, you know, you, I think we just stum- stum- uh, you know, we found these in. Um, and these films, there was all films about the the businesses and the African community, African American community, and we just look at each other and said, "This is great, you know, because finally we can see what they are talking about." The insurance welfare, and we can see shots of insurance in 1925, you know, serving their community. Uh, uh, Madam C.J. Walker, she she we have footage of her, the actual, you know, structure of doing products and doing all of that so you can see really the life the life uh of the in desegregated uh desegregated times because baseball became such a such an important thing in america that a lot of businesses from you know uh, like you said insurance companies to hotels you know Mm -hmm. uh, you know afl everybody had their own ball teams that they would play and as a matter of fact that became what i learned in your film a source of tourism entertainment Yes. So, like a place like the Breakers in Palm Beach had its own baseball team, you know, playing on the grounds of the Breakers or, or nearby. And um, uh, the old was it the Royal Oak Hotel the, that used to the be? Royal Ponciana, the Royal Ponciana, mm-hmm. which used to be uh, what we call government cut now. No, well, the, the Royal that, Palm. That is, that's the Royal Palm. Okay, I'm thinking so, that's the one. I so was Henry Flagler, what that we know, he had multiple hotels, but in, in our story is the Royal Palm, mm-hmm. Royal Ponciana, and the Breakers. Mm-hmm. So they have a, kind of like a, this places where they had the actual fields on the on the 
on the hotel grounds. Well, they started their own little mini league. Mini so league. Well, Hen- right. Henry Flagler knew. Uh, 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 he wanted to entertain his mm-hmm. guests at the different hotels, mm-hmm. and he knew uh, that Negro League Baseball uh, was very successful, and and these players around also needed uh, different ways to supplement their income as well, and so they would work at the different hotels as different. Uh, taking different jobs, porters and and waiters and different things that they would do uh, at the hotel and even when it came to trains, working on the trains. Uh, and then they would also play baseball. So they were uh, they were kind of ringers, right? That's like right. Mm-hmm. they were ringers in the sense that like they would say, "Oh, this guy is uh, technically on the payroll as a chef." That's but, right. but really, we <laughs> was we quote unquote player. signed him like a, you know like a private school might sign a. You might give a scholarship to a, to a kid from a public school. That's correct. And so the the uh, the originator of the Negro Leagues, uh, uh, Roy Foster, hmm. uh, was actually uh, one of the players playing for the Royal Ponciana uh, team. So you have like these these teams that are coming down playing in Palm Beach uh, and you know in Florida here, not just on Palm Beach, but also over in Tampa and 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 up in the Panhandle. So all throughout. Florida, there was a lot of great baseball happening, mainly, you know, the weather as well. So having great weather all the time, you know, you also have that in Major League with spring spring ball coming right. down to Florida. There's a reason so, spring training is here absolutely. and in Arizona because Abs- it's, right. it's always sunny. Right? Absolutely. And so just playing um, uh, playing year-round is uh, extremely important. And there, therein, therein lies how the name came about. You know, never drop the ball. In reality, these players played year round. They never put the ball down, and they constantly uh, played baseball. Be it, uh, be it uh, here in the United States or internationally. When the winter leagues in the winter leagues, mm-hmm. so constantly playing the game that they love uh, and making a life of it. And and that is that is actually the the way uh, the Negro Leagues business work. Right now, they were. Michael mentioned uh, uh, internationally. So what happened internationally is these countries are having a little money. They're trying to create their own leagues. The major leagues are not coming to Barnstorm here. And they say, you know, these African-American players, they might want to come. And they are featured because they are skilled and very good baseball. They come to these towns and all of a sudden they, these combinations start making sense you know right like they they had the uh, it's almost like we talk about uh, you know north and south of the hemisphere where you had winter in one place summer in the other place they they built their seasons around like this is when these guys aren't playing in the US we'll have them here and this will be the heart of our baseball season mm-hmm. so they played in in uh, all over Latin America, but like, Mexico, like Cuba, Venezuela, Venezuela Mexico yeah. were like the big three, mm-hmm. right? And uh, Dominican, uh, Dominican Republic. Republic. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. Dominican and Republic. Um, and there was uh, there was one, and you guys highlight players. Um, like there was one guy that was, uh, I want to say he was like an all star in seven different leagues or something in like five that. Five different he, countries. He is in yes. five different countries. Is uh, Martin De Higo. Martin and De Higo. Mar- Martin De Higo, to put it like in soccer terms, he's mm-hmm. the Peleo baseball. Mm. He play all the positions. I mean, I, this is I'm stealing the words from the president of the Negro League, and he played them well, all of them. Mm-hmm. So he and he was very good at it all. So he was a very charming guy, uh, tall, handsome, good good player all around. So he uh, deserves to be in these five 
uh, Hall of Fame. And it's funny because we see a player, a modern day player today, like Shohei Otani, right? Mm-hmm. Who is the thing that makes him amazing is that you know we call him a modern day Babe Ruth, right? Because he's an amazing pitcher and he's an amazing hitter. And it's like so many Negro League players were doing that because their teams were smaller, and sometimes you were you were pitching. Uh, you might play a triple header, right? That's and right. sometimes you might pitch, play first base, play the outfield, right? Like you were, you had to be the kind of person because these guys were hustling. This was their their livelihood. That's right. And the more you played, and the more positions you could play, right? Uh, the the more money you could make, the yes. better your career could be. But, yes. But I'll say that the Japanese player is the modern version of Martin De Higo, no Babe Ruth. Oh, I love that. Yes. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I totally agree that it's that it's a, it's a connection further back. It's a connection Correct. to a to a to more like the Negro League type players than. Uh, and the Negro Leagues have grown so popular that they even have a you know video game. It's called the Show. Um, so they are popular, and I you know they were recognized in 2020 as a major uh, league. So you know I think now the line is shining on them, and uh, you know we're looking forward to. Them continue with uh, with showing this history that yeah. was you know, untold before. And I also want to say too, like you know, uh, we have a website uh, put together for this uh, documentary. Uh, so Negro Leagues uh, Baseball dot org uh, is the website Negro League Baseball dot org. But uh, you know, a lot of voices that we brought uh, that are agreed to be a part of this uh, project, you know, really tell the story. So for us, it's more about uh, crafting the story and, and, and hopefully getting it in this one hour time slot uh, that makes sense and it's compelling in the storytelling. But the voices uh, really have the history that it brings in. We mentioned um, Bob Kendrick uh, from the Negro League uh, Museum, uh, uh, Larry Lester, uh, as well, author of the East-West All-Star Game history of that with a lot of uh, stats mm-hmm. uh, involved, but also a lot of history. He gave us so much history when it came to Satchel Page, and um, even Satchel Page is, uh, was the uh, godfather to his kids. So, I mean, he lived down the street from Satchel Page, mm-hmm. uh, Josh Gibson, mm-hmm. uh, and so we interviewed Sean Gibson, I believe the great great grandson grandson of Josh Gibson, uh, Abel Sanchez, Sanchez. uh, local uh, Miami historian. Shout out Uh, to Abel Sanchez. You're wearing some of his. That's right. That's right. I'm wearing it today. Yeah, Abel. Shout out to you. And these are these are also the guys that you interview, folks. We should spend some time on them because these guys Mm -hmm. um, really are deeply rooted in knowledge. um, Abel, who you mentioned. Uh, was involved in like getting some historical markers uh, recognized at, at the old Miami Stadium. Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, that's what his uh, shirt has, the Miami Stadium, with a picture of him uh, sitting yeah. on him, and, and the history of even Miami Stadium, and even um, uh, these uh, entertainment, the clowns coming and playing, you know, even at the stadium years later, coming back, mm-hmm. uh, playing there, and on Satchel Page playing uh, in the stadium. So, and that stadium no longer exists, but the, the history and knowledge of it is really important. And Abel helps keep that history alive. Right. For and sure. I think that's why it's important to have every city, you know, have historians that they dedicate their lives to do this type of work. Right. Nobody and has to give you Abel a business Sanchez, card. Yeah. Nobody has to give you a business card for you to, <laughs> for you to care about the history of your that's city. Right. And Absolutely. How build on it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like you guys, okay. You mentioned the clowns and we were talking about this earlier. So it starts as kind of like this pre globetrotter-esque type of thing right where they're doing like one of the things i love was shadow baseball right like they they'll play like a quote-unquote game like a little scrimmage where there's no ball 
right? And it's like people went just for that pregame, just mm-hmm. for that to the sort of speak like the entertainment, the theatrical factor of it, right? Yes. right? But then that later also kind of becomes a hallmark of of the Negro League game, where it's not like you know I run I run straight in at right angles going to bases. It's like they are looking at the most athletic ways to get around the bases, to get on base, to score runs. Like they're looking at baseball as a more than just like um, uh, this thing that's like badminton. Like it feels like baseball goes from badminton to something much closer to a to a, a lush athletic event. You know, I think for them it was a combination. Mm. It's just it's mentally it's like a chess. And physically, for um, these athletes, were that to be the best specimen to really run. I mean, sometimes when I see the picture, pictures, I'm like, um, you know, I see the difference. Uh, and they were playing fantastic, fast baseball, um, trying to um, be dominant, right. but in a nice way, you know. Right. Yeah, but but I, I also think in in baseball itself, uh, it, it is like chess, right? It's really uh, figuring out. Um, when to steal a base, figuring out when to bunt instead of uh, trying to hit a home run or, or, you know, really looking at it in that way because the goal is to have more uh, points on the uh, scoreboard at the end of the day, right? And so moving uh, these uh, players around the bases uh, and getting them home is important and it becomes more important than just hitting one ball out of the uh, out of a stadium but it's getting everyone around the bases and then you win four to four to one you well, know they, well, they kind of they kind of innovated that idea of of the bunt and the hit and run like start swinging have a guy start running right before you swing so you can try to increase the amount of runs you know mm-hmm. all that leads me to think about all the things that you know there's so much to it that you left all this fruit on the vine and I want to ask <laughs> some of the things that you left out of the film and maybe what it leads to a next film but first we have to take our last break. Our guests today are Michael Anderson and Fabian Cardenas. They are the filmmakers behind WLRN-TV's latest documentary, Never Drop the Ball. It's a one-hour documentary, and you guys pack in so much. There is so much there. And part, and yet, I couldn't help but think, like, I'd love a whole a whole separate episode on that. I'd love a whole episode on that other thing. <laughs> um, what is it What is it sparked for you about, you know, the some of the things that you maybe had to leave out and maybe what you want to build on from here. Well, there were several scenes that we we had to take out. Um, I think one of the, them was about women playing in the in the Negro leagues. Um, was a very important scene. Uh, I think for me and I think for Michael as well. Um, Tell me about that. So so that was a whole section. There were there it's were a women? whole scene that we need we needed for because of time. We needed to, um, you know, strike it. There were black, there were black women players playing in some black of the women. So basically, talk to me about that. That's really interesting. I had, I had no idea about that part. Basically, what is what is happening is as the baseball integrates, uh, women, um, they were trying to find another way to bring people to to watch the game. Mm-hmm. So, and were female uh, African Americans trying to to play, but they were denied in their own leagues. So they tried for. The men, you know, and then they say, oh, you know, this could be a great addition. They were skillful, no, not just because of side show. They were very skillful. So they came on board, and one of them is Stone, uh, Tony Stone, uh, Pina Johnson, and um, Morgan, I think, is the other one. Um, so they were in the, in, the, in the Negro Leagues, and they were brought by um, our team. 
the Miami Giants becoming the Ethiopian Clowns and um, and becoming the Indianapolis Clowns. They were kind of pioneers in bringing this type of um, of women to be to be mainstream. It's so right. interesting because I think of like the you know the Hollywood movie A League of Their Own for many years ago, and there's like one scene where like a black woman uh, who happens to there's a loose ball and she picks it up maybe from the stands or something and she kind of whips it back in and there's like this just this nod that this exists but yes. like mm-hmm. you're talking to me about a whole world that it was part of part and parcel part of big parts of of negro league baseball yes i, I think the other thing that uh is you know not left out but we touch on it mm-hmm. um in a sense and i think bob kendrick mentions it uh the best when he speaks about the inclusion uh, of of baseball uh, because baseball was very inclusive. Negro League baseball was very inclusive, not only with women playing in baseball, but also women owners uh, in oh, baseball. Really? And all, you know, you think about that too. It's not even when you think about Negro League baseball, you think there was maybe all black owners of Negro League teams, but there were also white owners of Negro League teams, um, and there were. Uh, white players and it was very also there was a lot of uh, players uh, from uh, Latin countries mm. uh, that could not also play in the major leagues that were playing in Negro baseball leagues and uh, you know barnstorming around and playing on these teams so you know when I think about just being inclusive the Negro leagues were very inclusive uh, and accepting uh, of yes. not on, women owners and and um uh, just other nationalities playing in the game and even white players playing in the game. So very inclusive. And I think we didn't go as deep as I would have liked to go in that because of uh, time, but mm-hmm. that is another part. And that's also some of the information we'll have on the website as well. Oh, so you filled out some of this information, stuff that you couldn't get in the film. You do get into a little more detail on the website. That's correct. And that website, again, is negroleaguebaseball.org. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. And um, you know, and and you mentioned a good point. You know, we have, um, you know, over the years, a lot of like Afro Latino players who settled in Miami, who are like, min- I'm thinking like Minnie Minoso. Exactly. I'm thinking of uh, mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. not necessarily Negro League, but Tony Perez. You know, Tani Perez, as mm-hmm. you know, as my mom knew him in Cuba. You know, her favorite baseball player, yeah. and he ends up being, you know, obviously one of the one of the great and key components of Cincinnati's, you know, great World Series teams, the Big Red Machine. And so, like, there's this long history of it. It, I, I, it almost makes me uh, think of, wonder back for an alternate timeline where the Negro Leagues become the ones inside the stadiums, right? And then white players integrate into those teams, right? Yes. Because there was so much talent mm-hmm. inside those teams. Yeah, absolutely. I think even one of the, like, side stories uh, when it came to uh, traveling internationally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Satchel Page has all-star teams that are traveling to Venezuela. And, and um, there were times, uh, from my understanding and, and, and listening and to the research and in this process mm-hmm. with uh, our interviewees uh, in the project, just hearing how uh, at in Kansas City, uh, the Venezuelan, uh, I don't know, people would come with suitcases, you know, suitcases of money in a sense, and they were hiring these black baseball players to come play in Venezuela. That's uh, amazing. Yes. I, th- I think I think people from other countries are still showing up in Miami with that's, suitcases. That's with right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but but also, I think that even <laughs> that led to the fact that baseball, uh, the major leagues, needed to move forward mm. because uh, these players, uh, the game, the money, 
was moving internationally. They were eating their lunch. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think right. it's a lot of things that really turn the tides when it came to Negro Leagues, you know, and uh, going into the majors. Uh, and I think it, it, we keep saying it, but it all comes down to money. I, and, 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 I, and I think what the audience is um, to get from this is the courage, the, the you know, the, the strength and the love for a game can move mountains. And I think that's what the film is about. So, um, you know, we would love uh, to have everybody, the whole community in the theater on January 18th. Uh, and I think we have another viewing on the 24th. But, you know, uh, it's limited seated. So whoever wants to come, whoever wants Absolutely. to really see the film in the biggest screen uh, and, and perceive everything that you have perceived from the film, um, they are welcome to come and enjoy this this film. Yeah, we're also bringing in those historic the people we mentioned. Uh, so Larry Lester uh, is coming uh, to the screening here at the Lyric Theater. Remind us who Larry Lester? Larry, Larry Lester is one of our interview mm -hmm. uh, participants. He is a co-founder of the Negro League Museum. He's also written a book on the East-West All-Star Game. Uh, lots of uh, history and knowledge uh, when it comes to the game, uh, as well as the the different individuals uh, in the sports. He has a great uh, uh, story. Is it uh, about turning off the lights? Uh, uh, I, 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 he has a great story. So the East, he has like a three books in the East and West. <laughs> especially he specializes wow. on that. But whoever loves baseball, I think, will be a treat yeah. to come and see Larry Lester. Yeah. Don't you think? Yeah, I think I think so. And I one of the things I don't want. Uh, it's not all about baseball. Right. It's about this human story. It's about these individuals. It's about the story. And you could take you could take this game and put it in many different ways. You know, it could be a model for a business. You know, you know, we got all these TED talks and talking about how to start businesses and, and be very mm -hmm. successful mm -hmm. in business. You know, the Negro League, the Negro Leagues can be a blueprint of how to do that. You yeah. know, right, right, right. <laughs> how exactly. to how to integrate everybody, how to keep fighting even though the doors are shutting you know you show up somewhere somewhere else and you start moving and trying to take business decisions that eventually um you know change the whole sport and the uh american society talk to me about what working on this project and making this film what it changed for you guys how did it how did it affect the way that you see baseball that you see south florida that you see sports the world what was the the biggest thing that come out of this project for you guys for for me as a foreigner, you know, I'm no I'm not from here. I'm you know 20 years here already. I feel like Miami is my my home, and and we always have think about Miami as this big town with a lot of flash and whatever. But for me, it really sparked like oh, you know, South Florida has interesting stories, has depth, and I thought that depth it was for me wonderful to discover and be able to share. You know, yeah. yeah. I mean, personally, for me. You know, uh, I go back to my family uh, being uh, uh, from the South, uh, from Alabama. And personally, in my own family, my grandmother and grandfather, my grandmother met my grandfather playing while he was playing baseball. Amazing. And so like in the documentary, talk about uh, leaving church and going to the baseball field. Well, that's exactly what happened in my family. And so my grandmother would leave church and go uh, see him and they started courting uh, and then the rest is history and then we have this huge family but so baseball uh, was at the beginning of that uh, for me and then just growing up locally here in Miami 
uh, all my life and just uh, and being a someone that always wants to know history and connect with history all around us, uh, preserving that history in Overtown, uh, which really made this uh, uh, project very important for me as well because it's just so much history there that I, I feel everyone just doesn't know it. We pass by Overtown on I-95 and don't think twice about uh, what's underneath mm. uh, the highway. And so this, the cityscape continues to change and just knowing that history. So it made it just very important for me to tell this story. Well, Michael, Fabian, thank you for telling a great American story. I appreciate you guys spending the hour with us. Our guests today were Michael Anderson and Fabian Cardenas. They're the filmmakers behind WLRN-TV's latest documentary, Never Drop the Ball. There are two screenings coming up this Thursday at the Historic Lyric Theater in Miami and next Wednesday at Florida Atlantic University. The documentary airs on WLRN-TV February 2nd. And that's Sundown for Monday, January 15th. Leslie Ovalle Atkinson is our lead producer. Our producer is Elisa Baena. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News, and Katie Munoz is our Director of Live Programming. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's VP of Radio, and our engineer is Richard Ives. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, we talk about reggae music, its roots, and its influence. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only.